in the Gospel of Mark. We're at Mark chapter 14, verses uh, 43 to 52. And so I would invite you to uh, turn in your Bible, whether that's uh, an actual physical Bible or your digital Bible. Uh, and uh, we'll read from the English Standard Version translation. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching. And you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Let's pray. Father, grant us that kind of grace that your Holy Spirit gives to those who believe and trust your word to illuminate our understanding of what this passage is all about, how it can speak to us, how it can teach us, how it can point us to Jesus in a deeper way, how we can learn from it, how we can be edified and strengthened by it, how even in this passage your scriptures can do its wonderful work of teaching us and correcting us and reproving us and even training us in righteousness so that we as your people can be fully equipped for every good work. We ask that you would do this, Father, please, to enable us to do much for your kingdom, but above all, to trust every day in your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. As we begin this passage here, I want us to drop back a couple of verses to see its connection with what was going on in Gethsemane. And so we go back to verse 41, and we read where Jesus came to Peter, James, and John, the disciples, a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand. So after the intense agony that Jesus experienced in the Garden of Gethsemane, that, that agonizing experience that was of physical distress and emotional distress, uh, after Jesus has spent a considerable amount of time in prayer, the, the best estimate is that Jesus has spent no less than three hours in prayer. He is now strengthened to go forward to his death even in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Now listen to what it says in Isaiah 50, uh, verses 5, 6, and 7. Now this is 
Jesus, prophetically speaking, in the Old Testament as the Messiah. And so hear these words as the words of Christ, spoken by prophets eight centuries before Jesus came into this world. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. Think about what went on in the garden. Jesus said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I turned not backward. Now, hear this closely. Picture this in terms of what's going to happen to Jesus. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like flint and I know that I shall not be put to shame. Now, you see, Jesus, in, in the deepest distress in, in Gethsemane, had turned to his heavenly Father in prayer. He had prayed, as we looked at last week, for what seemed best for him, and then fully surrendered his own will to what was God's best for all. And he said, not my will, but your will be done. And now his Father in heaven has strengthened him so that he has set his face toward betrayal and toward the arrest and toward the trial and toward the beatings and toward the physical and verbal abuse and toward the cross in order to finish the work that the Father has given to him to be the Savior of the world and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in this brief episode, what we see before us is that Jesus has set his face like flint to face what is coming, to provide us then with three perspectives in this passage on the kingdom of Christ. Because remember, Jesus dies under Pontius Pilate, and the criminal charge put against Jesus is this, the king of the Jews. And all throughout the trial of Jesus, Mark is going to pick up on the phrase, the king of the Jews. And so this passage points us to nothing other than the kingdom of Christ from three perspectives. It shows us how the world sees that kingdom. It shows us how the disciples at that point saw that kingdom. But that it also shows us how Christ viewed his own kingdom. When we look at these, there's going to be one main lesson. It's not a simple lesson. It's something of a complex lesson. But there's one great lesson that I want us to receive out of this passage. We can say it like this. Are we not reading the story of Christ? Isn't that what this gospel is all about? It is. So think of it this way. If your story and the story of your life is in Christ, if you belong to his kingdom, then you can trust him to be your king and shepherd over your life, to be with you in every circumstance of your life, even though you should walk through the valley of the shadow of death, Christ, your king, your shepherd, your redeemer, your savior will be with you. That's the point of looking at these three different perspectives on the kingdom that we find illustrated in this passage. It's about remembering who Jesus is. 
It's about remembering the kingdom of God and the story of that kingdom and recognizing that you, your life, your story, by faith, is part of what God is doing through his kingdom. Now, first of all, the world's perspective on the kingdom of Christ uh, happens to be one of the, of the deepest and therefore saddest misunderstandings. We, we see this in how Jesus is arrested in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd of, with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. So the enemies of Jesus, including Judas, think they need to come up against him with a great show of force and power. So Mark points to the crowd with the swords and the clubs. Matthew calls it a great crowd. Uh, John tells us that this great crowd also consisted in a number of soldiers. And Jesus himself says down in verse 48, uh, have you come out against me as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple and you didn't seize me. So the point is this, that the enemies of Christ think that worldly power and force is necessary to overcome Jesus in order to capture him, in order to arrest him. Or another way of seeing this is this. In the miracles that Jesus had demonstrated through his life, he had shown his great power over the forces of nature. Even the wind and the sea had obeyed him. He had shown his great power over demonic forces. By simply a word, he could cast out the demons. He had shown his great power over all manner of diseases because he could heal with a word at a distance, he could heal by a touch. And he'd even shown his great power over the very end of life itself, death, by raising some from the dead. Now, the enemies of Christ think they can overcome him with worldly power and worldly force. What does this illustrate? How deeply they misunderstand Jesus and the power of the kingdom. They deeply misunderstand the kingdom of God in every way. But even Judas, who was the closest, obviously, of all the enemies, falls into the same kind of perspective because Judas thinks that somehow he's actually involved in some this conspiracy that betrays Jesus and is, is being traitors toward Jesus by some kind of subterfuge because Judas comes up to Jesus and greets him with that familial greeting that friends who are in fellowship with one another would always greet one another, and that is with a kiss, as though that somehow is going to fool Jesus. Verse 44, Judas had given this, this sign. The one I kiss is the man sees him. And so then verse 45, Jesus, Judas comes up to Jesus and he calls him rabbi. You know, not the highest title that the disciples called Jesus, but nevertheless, one that would still be on those friendly term kinds of things. As if in any sense, he could truly fool Christ. Now, what does this show? What does the show of force show? What does it show in Judas's thinking that somehow he can fool Jesus, that this is part of the way Jesus needs to be captured? What does this show? It shows how deeply, it illustrates how deeply 
the world does not understand the nature of the kingdom of Christ. Jesus had proclaimed the kingdom of God, which pointed to him for three years. The enemies of Christ had a great fear that this kingdom that Jesus was proclaiming and proclaiming that he was bringing would somehow be some kind of kingdom of this world that they could oppose with earthly and worldly force. Now, what are we to make of this? So much exposure to Jesus, even belonging to the inner circle of Jesus, like Judas, did not result in either Judas or his enemies understanding the kingdom of God. This is terribly significant. Uh, why is that and how is that the case? Well, it all goes back to Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve broke fellowship from God, they brought into the human race spiritual blindness. When people are outside of the active working of the grace of God, they cannot see and they cannot understand the workings of the kingdom of God. Non-believers, the Bible tell, tells us, are truly blind spiritually. They don't really see Jesus as Jesus is. They don't really see his kingdom as his kingdom actually is. They can't comprehend that the greatest need of the world and their greatest need is not to reject Jesus, but to embrace Jesus. Rather than resisting Christ or fighting against Christ, they should be embracing Christ. It's not always easy to see how truly deep this darkness is. It's... it's you might know it at one level and you might not practice it as another. I still remember in my first year of college, I was in so many ways a brand new Christian. What had happened to me happened my senior year in high school and I'm in college. And I'm thinking again and again and again, and I, I'm on fire for, for Jesus, let's say. I mean, I want to talk to people about Jesus all the time. And I'm thinking, if I can just get this person to just pay attention, to really listen, if I can just explain to them what the Bible is really saying about the fact that we need Jesus, if I can just, if, if I can just hold their attention for 20 minutes, I can get this message across and the light's going to go on and they're going to see it and they're going to want to pray to receive Jesus. Time and time again, I thought that that's all it was going to take. Time and time again, I thought it just means a clear explanation of who Jesus is. I even somewhat tried this on my high school English teacher who was an avowed atheist. And I knew she was an avowed atheist. And I came back and was visiting in her classroom after my first year of college and said, why didn't we talk about Jesus? The greatest figure in all of Western history. Why didn't we talk about Jesus? And I started to launch into a little bit about why Jesus is so important. And, and, and just to make this clear to her, I got shut down just like that. Another time, because I was in the philosophy department, I'm sitting in a professor's office and he's asked me what I'm going to do with my life. And I say, well, I think I might be a missionary or a minister. He goes, why? Were your parents missionaries? You know, like it's genetic. I said, No. I said, uh, I, 
because I believe in Christ. Why do you believe in Christ? Well, uh, well, because I'm absolutely convinced he was raised from the dead. Why would you believe that? I said, well, because I think there's really good evidence for it. He said, you mean evidence like historically Caesar crossed the Rubicon? You know, that's a great event in Caesar's life. History demonstrates it. I go, yeah, like that. You know, real history showing that Jesus rose from the dead. He goes, well, haven't you read David Hume on miracles? You know, the great skeptic. He couldn't even possibly conceive that anything about Jesus could be so significant that I would give my life to Christ and want to serve him. It took a while for me to begin to see that when people are not under the direct influence of the grace of God and the working of the kingdom, they're blind. They're spiritually blind. They can't see the kingdom of God. Now, this is exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 3. He's having this conversation with Nicodemus. You know, Nicodemus is one of the great teachers of Israel. He comes to Jesus by night, probably doesn't want to be, you know, necessarily embarrassed that he's gone to see Jesus because that wasn't necessarily good for his reputation. But in that conversation, Jesus has to say to Nicodemus, this great teacher of Israel, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And the word again there can also be translated above. Unless you are born again, unless you are spiritually reborn from above, you can't see the kingdom of God. It reminds us of what the Apostle Paul wrote about this very thing in Ephesians chapter 2, in the first uh, four verses. Listen how Paul describes the spiritual blindness, why people can't see the kingdom of God. Paul says, But you, meaning before you became Christians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Not sick, not not, not feeling well. Hi, God, I'm not feeling too well. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But because you're a Christian, God didn't leave you there. That's where this great transition takes place, beginning at verse 4. But God, not you, but God, not your effort, but God, not because you were so smart to figure out who Jesus was, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he's loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive, spiritually caused us to be reborn, gave us new life, made us a new creation, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, See how the world doesn't get it with respect to the kingdom of God. What are you supposed to do about it? 
invent more sophisticated ways that you might persuade them that you're smarter than anyone else and therefore you can reason them into the kingdom of God? No. I tried that a little bit. Doesn't work. We must pray for people. We must pray for God to work upon them. We must pray for God to remove their blindness. We must pray for God to change their hearts. We must pray for God to give them an interest in their own eternal souls. We must pray that God, who has placed eternity in their hearts, would uncover the meaning of what that eternity in their hearts actually means. We must pray that God would do all the work. And with them, when they say, I can't believe, we need to say, I know you can't. You don't have the ability to believe on your own. You need to call out to God for his help and his mercy and his grace. Even though you say you don't believe, but you're somewhat interested in what I say, at that very point, you need to call out to God. I mean, Jesus himself said that if any man is willing to do the will of God, then he will know of my teaching, whether it's from myself or whether it's from heaven. That's what we have to say to people. Look, I know you can't believe. I know this doesn't make sense to you. And you can't figure it out. Nobody could figure it out on their own. But God can reveal it to you. That's what we have to say. That's what we need to say. That's what we need to pray for. That's what we need to hope with respect to people who are still part of the kingdom of this world. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he's near. That's what we need to pray that they would do, to encourage them to do so. Now, in the second place, this, this, uh, this episode here uh, points us to the disciples and how they viewed the kingdom of Christ at this time how they understood it, their perspective. And, and basically what we see here is that somehow they felt that the kingdom of Christ needed their help. We see this in verse 47. It's a deep misunderstanding, but look how this misunderstanding plays out in verse 47. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. You have the picture? They're coming up to capture Jesus. They're all surrounding him. And one of the disciples takes out a sword and swings it at, at basically uh, the servant of the high priest. Now, Mark doesn't say who this is. Because it's possible that Mark's gospel was still early enough that there may have been some people who might have come after the disciple who did this. At least one commentator said, the statute of limitations might not have run out yet. Matthew tells us a little bit more than what Mark tells us. And behold, one of those who was with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take up the sword will perish by the sword. So clearly it's a disciple of Jesus who's striking out against the enemies of Christ at this point. Luke tells us a bit more. Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So Jesus miraculously undoes the damage which this wrong effort on the part of one of his disciples does. Which further emphasizes that Jesus didn't really need this kind of effort or help. 
with respect to the kingdom. It's John who identifies the disciple who did this. The fact that Mark doesn't mention him by name and the fact that this is a kind of rash and impetuous kind of movement, most of us could guess. Yeah, it's Peter. Then Simon Peter, having his sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Again, emphasizing, Peter, this is not an effort for the kingdom that's motivated in the right way. It's not the right thing to do. So that's what, that's what Peter's action shows. It shows that he himself at this point was still misunderstanding the kingdom of God. Now, it's different from the religious leaders. They reject Christ because they can't see that Jesus is good for them. They can't see that they really need Jesus. Peter knows that Jesus is the Christ. Peter knows that Jesus is the Messiah. Peter also knows that he needs Jesus. But he doesn't yet understand how he needs him or what being part of the kingdom of God actually or fully means. So at this moment, he thinks Jesus needs him. He thinks his job is to protect Christ, to defend Christ. He thinks somehow that the kingdom of God depends upon human effort. But we notice that Jesus has rejected this human effort to defend him or to protect him. Because the underlying motivation and thinking on the part of the Apostle Peter is entirely wrong. Earlier that evening, in the Gospel of John, we read a very long message that Jesus had given to his disciples. Right in the middle of that long message that starts in chapter 13, goes through 14, 15, 16, and 17... Right in the middle, in chapter 15 and in verse 5, this is what Jesus had told his disciples. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus was talking about the great work of the kingdom. He said, you must abide in me. You must abide in my word. You must pray in the authority of my name. And in abiding in me, you will bear much fruit to the Father's glory. But Jesus never said, but apart from you, I can do nothing. Jesus never said, all that I want to do for the kingdom depends upon you. Jesus never said, I'm powerless without your obedience, or I'm helpless without you doing everything you can for my name's sake. Jesus never, ever intimated that what he intended to do and what he was doing ever depended upon the disciples' Helping him out. Now let's, let's understand what this is all about. Jesus never taught his disciples to think or believe that he was dependent upon their efforts in order for the kingdom to be successful. But that was hard for the disciples to understand. They couldn't really realize this until after the resurrection from the dead. Yet all of the Old Testament had taught this lesson about the God of Israel and the kingdom of God as it was ruling over creation and the kingdom of God that was ruling over Israel, again and again, God had shown that it was not at all the case that in any way he depended 
upon their efforts for the successful work of his kingdom. And what you're just noticing me doing is I have misfiled my papers, my notes here, in my preaching. I almost skipped 15 minutes. You would have hated that. (laughs) What God demonstrates in the history of Israel is that his work and his kingdom through Israel never depends upon the power of the army of the Jews. Now, for instance, that's the story of the Exodus. God, not a Jewish revolt and uprising, delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt. It was he who delivered them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Moses didn't do it. Jesus, the the disciples, the followers of Moses didn't do it. It was all of God that did it. Story of Gideon. It wasn't a great army of Jewish soldiers that delivered the Israelites during that time from the Midianites. It was, in fact, Gideon and a small band of 300. Then you have the story during the reign of Hezekiah. The armies of the Assyrian king Sennacherib have come down, have decimated the northern kingdom. Now they're surrounding the headquarters, the the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem itself. Uh, Many have fled into Jerusalem as the stronghold. And the Assyrian king sends messengers to say to all of the Jews... Do not listen to Hezekiah, your king. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat of his own vine. Each of you will will eat under his own fig tree. Each of you will drink the water from your own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? So there's the great challenge. So did Hezekiah say, arm every one of you, all of you men. Get out your sword, attach it to your your belt. Get ready. We're going to launch an offense power upon power against these Assyrians. Now, Hezekiah prayed these words. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Lord. Now, what did God do? He declared to Hezekiah, through the prophet Isaiah, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And the people arose early in the morning. Behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh, where his own sons assassinated him, while he was worshiping 
in the temple of his own false god. Peter should have known that the kingdom of Christ did not need fleshly and worldly efforts in order to be successful. In fact, this is the irony of the whole situation. A few hours earlier, Jesus had told Peter and James and John exactly what they needed to do in terms of genuine spiritual warfare in the face of these great dangers to come. They needed to pray. They needed to be seeking God. But here in this moment of crisis, having slept instead of prayed, Peter puts all of the wrong efforts into helping the kingdom of Christ in a holy, worldly manner, which does not do any good, which Jesus must reject. In fact, Jesus must correct. The lesson here is hard for a lot of Christians to believe. Christ doesn't need your help. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He never says, apart from you, I can do nothing. He doesn't really need our help. That puts all of our works and efforts in an entirely different category. Christ is pleased to honor us by using us. When we give our efforts toward him according to his own directions and his own teaching and doctrine. He is pleased to use us. He honors us by including us in the work of the kingdom. Two very helpful principles that Paul says in the book of Philippians. He points out to the Philippians that he, Jesus, who began a good work in you, it's he who will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's not you and Jesus. It's not Jesus and you. The work that's going to be done in you and finished in you will be the work of Christ in you. Well, are we to do nothing? No, because in the second chapter, he puts out this second principle. He says, therefore, work out your salvation, not for your salvation, but work out your salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now, Paul doesn't explain how that all works out. But the scriptures are very clear. God works in us to will and to do his good pleasure. And therefore, we should, we should give Jesus all effort. We should give Jesus... Let me clarify that. No, you should not give Jesus all effort. You should give Jesus all effort that's in accordance with what he says. Because you can't go out and convert your non-Christian neighbors putting a gun to their head. Now, something like that did happen in the church during the Middle Ages, you know. Let's use the sword here and get these people to convert. Not often did the church operate that way. But we've had any number of people say, you know what? Here's how you get someone to believe in Jesus. You've got to work on their emotions. You've got to make them feel all emotional. You've got to get them all worked up. And then, then you've got to talk to them. You've got to be like a great salesman. You've got to get the pitch across. 
You've got to be interesting. You've got to be exciting. You've got to be persuasive. You've got to keep talking to them until you break down their resistance. And then when you see that they just have no more resistance, then you've got to say, why won't you believe in Jesus right now and pray this prayer? And there have been evangelists who've said, it works. It's effective. We can do it. We can get people to believe in Jesus if we just have the right techniques and the right practices and play the right music and put the right kind of atmosphere. We see this. If you've studied the history of evangelism, you know that there were many who thought that the work of the kingdom of Christ needs this kind of help that was invented, Charles Finney, perfected by Dale Carnegie. <laughs> the idea that we can emotionally move people to Jesus if we just have the right ability to do so. You see, in one sense, that's promoting Jesus and defending Jesus and persuading people to Jesus by our efforts. And if you're not an eloquent person, if, if you don't have the gift of gab, if you would fail as a salesman, you could never really be effective in sharing Jesus with anyone. The sword of the Spirit is not Peter's sword. And the sword of the Spirit is not your natural abilities. What God has gifted us with and equipped us with is His message. The power of His message. Because Christ doesn't need you. But it's Christ's great pleasure to honor you by using you. And to use you when you use the methods that he's given you, when you use the power that he's given you, when you use the message of the gospel, and when you use prayer, when you love people and care for people and show them that their eternal welfare is your deep concern, and you tell them they need Christ, and you pray for them because they need Christ, and you expose them to the word of God because they need Christ, and then you trust Christ to do his great work. The, the last perspective we find here in this passage is Christ's own perspective with respect to the kingdom. Uh, we find this in a very brief statement, verse 49, when Jesus says, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Jesus knows what's happening to him. He knows that as in being arrested and being rejected by his own people, and the disciples falling away, uh, he knows with respect to the trial that's going to come uh, with the beatings, the physical and verbal abuse and then the cross. Jesus knows that all of this is in accordance with God's eternal plan that God has set in motion, that God has predicted in the scriptures and that Jesus is going to be fulfilled. Them. Jesus knows that the kingdom of God goes forward as God has designed it to go forward to fulfill all of the scriptures. For instance, even this very passage, Zechariah 13.7 speaks to it. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. 
and I will turn my hand against the little ones. That's a prophecy that the disciples are going to fall away when the shepherd, Jesus, is the one who's arrested and taken off to death. We can also think about Isaiah 53.8, where it tells us in that great passage in Isaiah 53, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. That's what happened to Jesus. And then we've already noticed that the prophecies in Isaiah included what was going to happen to Jesus physically, where he says, I gave my back to those who would strike my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. You actually read in the, in the Passion Week account of the trial of Jesus, these things happening to Jesus. Jesus went as it was written of him. Jesus went in terms of fulfillment of Scripture. The story of Jesus had been inscribed in the mind of God in eternity past and laid out in the prophetic Scriptures. And Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that his kingdom was in accordance with the word of God. David himself had predicted in Psalm 2, we read it during the worship service, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand together, the rulers counsel against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, let's burst their bonds asunder and cast away their cords from us. And of course, if you know Psalm 22, you know it's the crucifixion psalm. And you know all of Isaiah 53 is the atonement psalm. We know that Jesus' story was written in Scripture. And Jesus knows his story was written in Scripture. And so he knows the kingdom of God will go forward as God has written it shall go forward. Now, story presented to us is the story of the kingdom of God, the story of the king that God brings into this world to bring salvation to us who would trust in him. How does this apply to us? If your story, if the story of your life is in Christ, if you belong to his kingdom, then you can trust this Jesus to be your shepherd and to be your king in all the circumstances of life. Even if, like Jesus, you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you can trust Jesus because he will be with you. And so our prayer is this. Father, teach us to trust your Son. Teach us to lean not on our own understanding in all the things of life, Teach us to acknowledge Jesus in all of our ways that we might know that you would direct our paths. How wonderful it is to lean on Jesus and to know that Jesus never needs to lean upon you. He's all sufficient when all you have to offer him is your frailty, your weakness, and your sin. He is all sufficient. Trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Father, we would ask for the faith to trust Jesus. For the faith to, to realize that if by your grace we see the kingdom, if we know that his great story includes our story of life, 
if we know that all that Jesus has done has been done for, for us, then help us to trust Him. Trust Him for all the affairs or the things that we go through. To trust Him when we are so weak to know that He is strong. And to desire uh, to do all that we can for Jesus, not because we're helping Him out as though He needed us, but because it's a great honor to serve the King of all glory. Oh, enable us. Move in our hearts to desire to give all for Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen.